0: Greetings and grace, everyone. Due to my absence this week, I am re-airing last week's program, but I do encourage you to listen to the program still yet. If you did listen to last week, uh, maybe you missed something, or the reinforcement is always good. If you have any questions, comments uh, about the faith in general, again, don't hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or, as always, you can contact me also by way of my website at uh, joholcraft.org. So God bless and enjoy. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me this Friday evening, wherever you may be and however you may be accessing uh, this program, whether it is on KKXX or if you're listening to me by way of podcast, uh, I welcome you. And if you are a faithful listener out there, you know that from one Friday to the next... We take up uh, the Gospel for Sunday. Now, this particular Friday, what I thought we could do is uh, pause and and take stock in some of the core principles of how to interpret Scripture. You know, from one uh, Friday to the next, as we break open the Gospel, certainly we give a nod to certain principles so that we might gain an appreciation of what we are doing here on this Friday evening, this Friday that is Uh, tagged scripture for sunday well because i am going to be gone next week what i thought we could do is take up the core principles of interpreting scripture so that uh, we might not lose sight of the tools that god has given us so as to be better interpreters of uh, the biblical text so with that i am flying solo if you have any questions thoughts comments concerns observations please don't hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com or you can uh Get me through my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact uh, link there, and you can email me there. So with that, by way of departure for this evening's program, what I thought we could do is just take up some general questions about the Bible. I mean, what is the Bible as we get into the gospel from one Friday to the next every Sunday we hear this gospel text it is good to take a step back and ask the question what is the Bible well the Bible is our spiritual family heirloom we all come from Adam and Eve and it is so important that when we go into read sacred scripture that we do so mindful that God is father and in light of that The church is the family of God. And if we're going to get a better stronghold on that great and towering point, we need to interpret Scripture within the context of salvation history. What do I mean? Well, I don't know about you, but I like to read. For all of you out there that like to read, I would pose to you a question. When you pick up a book and you read, do you start in chapter 48, chapter 53, chapter 60? And if you do, do you think you're going to get... the essence of what is going on in the story, the plot, the unfolding narrative? Well, no. You and I both know that is not the case. Where do you start? You start with chapter 1. So what I pose to you this evening is that we need to do the same with sacred scripture. Chapter 1. Well, what's chapter 1? The book of Genesis. When we start reading sacred scripture from the book of Genesis, what we are doing is reading chapter 1 of God's unfolding drama of salvation history. When we start in chapter 47, what are we doing? We are missing the first half of the story, huh? And I say chapter 47 with intention because how many books are in the Old Testament? 46, huh? And there's 27, of course, in the New. The first New Testament book, Matthew, would be chapter 47 of the book. So when we approach Scripture to better understand how God has worked in salvation history, what do we need to do? We need to go back to Genesis. I mean, why in the Gospel of Matthew does Matthew himself take time to make a point that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David? And then he goes on to give in the Hebrew what is called a tolodoth, a a genealogy of Christ, recording all of these names that, that to many of us don't mean a whole lot. Well, to the first century reader, it meant a lot, right? Who was Jesus? Where did he come from? These are all questions that we ask about our own lives. Who are we? And how do we go about better understanding that question? or How can we answer that question? Well, we go into our past. We go into our history. We've talked about this a great deal on this radio program. So within the spiritual context, what are we to do? Who are we? Where do we come from? This is what the first century reader was doing. And so Matthew takes note. Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham, son of David. So it immediately has you going back into... Just not the Old Testament, but Genesis. Right? So very important that when we pick up the Bible, we are mindful of this. Now, there are certain books that kind of carry the historical narrative. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Maccabees. The, the two New Testament books are Luke and Acts. Luke is the one who really carries the historical narrative. So you have 14 books that carry the historical narrative. That if you were to read the book of Genesis to Acts, you have that historical narrative. So all very important. Now, it's more than just history though, right? It's about redemption and sonship. So then the question is, I mean, how do we go about reading a book? You kind of get a sense of uh, what the book is about by maybe... The name of the chapters, Old Testament, New Testament. What is old, what is new? I mean, have we ever asked this question? How are we to interpret the word testament itself, right? Well, how are we to interpret the word testament itself? The word testament in the Latin testamentum more or less translates this idea of covenant. The Greek diatheke that we read in, in Mark 14, 24. This is the blood of the new covenant. Christ is saying this is the blood of the new testament so when we talk about old testament new testament we can also say old covenant and new covenant what is a covenant well the word covenant comes from a latin word convenire meaning a compact agreement or to come together but as i have noted on many occasions when we talk about god and the language of covenant it is more than this is yours and this is mine it is, I am yours and you are mine, because it's not an exchange of things, but an exchange of persons. He and me, I and him. As St. John Paul II would like to say, mutual interiority, this self gift to one another. This is what covenant love is all about. God says, I give you all of me. And this is exactly what he does on the cross and, of course, in the institution of the Eucharist. So when we talk about interpreting the Old Testament and New Testament, I think we can put this maybe in the context of Old Covenant and New Covenant. And the Old Dispensation was God's love for man. The Old Testament was about God's family bond with man. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it's about the grace that Christ gives us so that we might participate and share in God's very divine nature, as 2 Peter 1-4 reminds us. I love that verse. We are shares, partakers. In God's divine nature. How powerful is that? That is the quintessence of the New Covenant bond, how we are called to share in God's very identity. This is the gift that we receive in baptism. So, as we talk about the Bible, once we put it within the context of our uh, spiritual family heirloom, and we understand it as a book, like no other, of course, because it's inspired by God, we can better appreciate the importance of reading it as an inspired book. From Genesis to Revelation. All 73 books. They are very, very important. One book seen in light of the other. Huh? So, uh, I have a few verses I wanted to get to that really highlight this language of covenant. If you were to go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following, what's the language The prophet Jeremiah is talking about how at the dawn of the Messiah, there will be a new covenant, a new law, a law that will no longer be etched on stone, but be inscribed upon the heart. The only time the phrase new covenant is actually used in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and it highlights the law. It highlights relationship because law equals relationship. Remember Uh, the, the word law in Hebrew, yarach, is an archery term. An archery term that speaks more specifically to hitting bullseye because when you lived according to the law of God, you were hitting bullseye. And the yarach in the Hebrew bullseye was the heart of God. Isn't that beautiful? When we are living according to the divine law of God, we live in the very heart of God. This is what Paul is constantly talking about in his epistles. How about Jeremiah 3? Verses 16 to 17, the presence of God will no longer be in the Ark of the Old Covenant, but in Jerusalem all nations shall gather. And what does Paul talk about as it relates to, the, to Jerusalem? Well, the church, the church that Christ came to establish. When Ezekiel 38, 12, the prophet Ezekiel talks about Jerusalem being the center of the world. Why was it the center of the world? It is because that's where you went when you entered into communion with God. Why? Because Jerusalem was was the holy city where you entered into worship with God. That is the place where you worship. And where you worship is where you enter into communion with God. Well, the church is the place of worship. It is where we enter in communion with God. How about the prophet of Hosea? When he talks about after a period without a king, the children of David will rise again to a great nation. Remember that great prophecy from 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 and following where God enters into this great covenant with David. And he says, from your line, I will be with you for all eternity. This is why for the gospel of Matthew, it was so important for him to open up his gospel with what? Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Because he knew that his audience, that Palestinian Christian Jewish audience in the first century was steeped in the Old Testament was steeped in an understanding of the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Hosea. I could only imagine the first century Jew, Christian Jew, reading this and their hearts leaping for joy. That opening verse from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, do you mean to say that Jesus Christ is that son? The son that is to come from David's line? Is that what you're saying? Well, if there was any question about that, Matthew's response is adamantly yes. Constantly throughout his gospel, does he speak to Jesus Christ as the son of David? All right, so the language of covenant is very important. How about Elizabeth and Zechariah? You have heard me talk about the importance of names and how a name is this kind of a foreordained purpose and vocation. In scripture, it is always important to get to know the meaning of a name because it reveals God's plan, God's design. The purpose and meaning behind a life. How about Elizabeth? A name that means God has sworn. How about Zechariah? A name that means God remembers. In the parents of one St. John the Baptist, we have a kind of precursor to the Baptist himself. If the Baptist is a precursor to Christ, his parents are precursors to the precursor. <laughs> Preparing the way. Because all you have to do is get behind the name. God has remembers the oath he swore all the way back to Abraham, back to David. How do you enter into a covenant relationship with God? You swear an oath. Back in Genesis 17, in the first oath-swearing ceremony, what do you have? Abraham entering into this covenant relationship with Abimelech. Seven ewe lambs. There was oath-swearing. And all throughout the Old Testament, what do you see? More oath-swearing when a covenant is being made. And here you have these two names, the parents of the precursor to our Lord. God remembers the oath he swore. How powerful is that? So the language of covenant is the key that unlocks the Christian mystery and also how to better understand not only how to interpret scripture, but the larger picture of salvation history. Now, before we get into the two core principles of interpreting Scripture, the literal sense and the spiritual sense, I want to make a quick note about this human element and the divine element. One Dr. Scott Hahn once said, and I remember when he said this in the classroom, I love this, just as Christ is fully human and divine, so Scripture is fully human and divine. Brothers and sisters, sacred Scripture is inspired. Theopneustos, the breath of God. The breath that hovered above the waters in the story of creation, right? The very essence of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God inspires these human authors. So fully human, fully divine. And in this manner of speaking, the church considers then both history and spirit as very important as it begins to look at how to interpret scripture, Of course, history being tied to the human element and spirit being tied to the divine element. So then we are to take up the literal sense and spiritual sense. And now when I say literal sense, for clarification, what I am not saying is that, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You take out an eye if an eye is taken out. No, the literal sense in this context of interpreting scripture is about getting into the historical context. To some degree, what I've already talked about, huh? What is the intention of the author? What is the meaning conveyed by the word of Scripture through cultural and historical contexts? We always have to put a primacy on the historical context, not a sense that's more important than the other, the spiritual sense, but in matters of sequence, a priority. Because if we don't appreciate the historical context, if we don't appreciate the intention of the author, the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture through cultural and historical contexts— then we're not going to have a fuller sense of the meaning of the text. Again, if if we don't appreciate the historical context, we are not going to appreciate why Matthew would open up his gospel with the words that he did. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. I mean, what do you think about when you hear the word gospel? The evangelion in the Greek, the transforming message. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The good news that God has sent his son to save man from sin, right? That's the good news and how he calls us into relationship with him. That's the good news, right? Why is Matthew busying himself, painstakingly so, (laughs) recording our Lord's genealogy? Well, again, because he sees the importance of the Old Testament and he wants his audience to see from the first century to today what? That Jesus Christ is not only the fulfillment of the promise, but also the, the one who transforms and perfects the law. So as it relates to this literal sense, what more can we say? You know, I have a sister who's a sister. Who is a sister huh? I have a sister who's a Carmelite cloistered nun. She likes to write me letters. And I have always found that uh, I'm inspired after reading her letter. There's always something uplifting that she talks about. It inspires me. Now I can take all of her letters, and I have kept all of her letters, and I I can put them away in a treasure box and then bury it. If someone 500 years from now finds this treasure box, reads, reads these letters, would they be inspired by her words of how to live the Christian Catholic vocation? Yeah, sure. But would they fully understand the meaning of the letter if they didn't first appreciate What was going on in the year 2014 in the Sacramento Diocese? What was the political climate in the United States of America? Because let me tell you, to better appreciate what she writes about, you have to understand that. This is the literal sense. We do not remove the original habitat from any research. I mean, for all of you zoologists out there, if you are given an animal and you want to take care of the animal, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the original habitat. You're going to go to where this animal is from and hopefully gain more understanding into how to take care of that animal. And so this is what we're about. But it's just not the literal sense because the Bible just isn't history. As one Father Hansers von Balthasar once said, Scripture is not dead. We don't treat it like a corpse. huh? It is living because it is inspired. And for this reason, we turn to the spiritual sense. That sense, which helps us to better understand the unity of God's plan, speaking about the realities of the events as being signs. We always have to ask the question, as it relates to the spiritual sense, did God intend to mean this? The spiritual sense is interpreting scripture in the context of the Paschal mystery, bringing into view the spiritual depth of the historical event. Huh? Huh? This point is illustrated in the gospel that comes to us from the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes. In the literal sense, in that historical sense, Jesus Christ actually performed the miracle. There weren't caravans and buses rolling over the hills with, and, and providing more food, as, as some biblical scholars would suggest. My dear friends, we have to apply that hermeneutic of faith. The Bible is a religious book. It's a a very dangerous thing, a slippery slope, to begin to suggest that, well, the real lesson here is that many great things come from little things. Yeah, that's a spiritual point. But Christ actually performed this miracle. Christ actually rose from the dead. (laughs) That's the slippery slope. Suddenly, nothing was miraculous. But as we talk about the historical event and the spiritual depth within the historical event and how it points to, to something greater... This event anticipates the Eucharist, a point that Matthew reinforces with his usage of the verbs he he applies here, taking, blessed, broken, gave. Jesus feeds the crowd through the hands of the apostles. Spiritual depth, the disciples, intermediary role, pointing towards, pointing forward to their priesthood. They distribute the bread provided by Jesus in anticipation of the Eucharistic liturgy where the priests of the new covenant give the bread of life as holy communion to the church, the sacramental depth behind and underneath the historical event. That being said, as it relates to the spiritual sense, now the spiritual sense is broken down into three categories, the first being allegorical. Now, for all of you English scholars and literature scholars, you know that an allegory is the, is the description of one thing under the image of another. Now, as it relates to scripture, what we're talking about is typology. What is a type? Well, if you go to Romans 5, verses 12 to 20, Paul notes, Adam is a type of Christ. The Greek word there for type is typos, impression, pattern. I'm going to date myself here, but uh, when I was in college, I was using a typewriter to write my papers. Why is it called a typewriter? Well, Because there are these little steel letters that once they strike the canvas, they leave an impression on that canvas, a pattern on that canvas. Well, in the Old Testament, there are types of Christ. There are those figures, patriarchs and prophets alike, that leave an impression of Christ. This is why Matthew talks about Jesus being the new Moses, the new David, the new temple, the new Israel, the new Solomon, the new Jonah, He's constant in showing how all of these figures are a type of Christ. Very important to understand and appreciate that Jesus and Matthew are often alluding to the Old Testament in more subtle ways by drawing comparisons between ancient persons, places, and events, and Jesus himself. This form of Old Testament interpretation is called typology. A typological reading of the Old Testament is essentially attuned to the distinctive rhymes in salvation history where God acts in similar or we could say typical ways each time he reveals himself and delivers his people. Okay, I'm reminded of uh, one Mark Twain. History never repeats itself, but it has a rhyme scheme. Sacred scripture has a rhyme scheme. St. Thomas Aquinas put it this way, the faith of Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, lay hidden under shadowy symbols. Scriptures are living in only as far as they point to Christ. St. Augustine says it this way, the Old Testament is hidden in the New Testament, a New Testament reveals the Old Testament. Christ himself in John 5, 39 says, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. On the road to Emmaus, he's showing the people how he's a new Moses. What this helps us to do, is to better understand how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. As it relates to an example of typology concretely, we can always turn to Abraham and our Lord. When Abraham, the father of Isaac, calls Isaac to gather wood, put it on his back, and carry it up a mountain, Mount Moriah, so does what God the Father call his son to take wood and carry it upon his back up a mountain. And as history tells us, because Golgotha is in the range of Mount Moriah, tradition is held that where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac is the exact same spot where the father called our Lord on Calvary to offer himself. And what happened there on Mount Moriah? As the father was going to sacrifice his son as an offering, the angel of the Lord intervenes. And he says, I will provide the lamb. And so he does. Two thousand years later, his own son the Lamb of God, who, like Isaac, was willing and ready. But this time, the Son did offer himself. Amen. How about the moral sense? So The moral sense is about the instruction to act with justice, wisdom, types of what we ought to do. Along with the allegorical, there are times when the New Testament text itself is a kind of moral exegesis of the Old Testament. But above all else, what we are to gather within the context of the moral sense is how the inspired Word of God inspires you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, to live with an upright heart. And then lastly, we have the anagogical sense, a Greek word that means future. The anagogical sense is about viewing realities with eternal significance, living with the end in mind. For more on what I have talked about up to this point, I would encourage all of you out there to turn to the Catechism and If you were to go to paragraphs 1, 14, 15, 16, 17, there it talks about the census. But even going back to paragraph 101 and following, you would have some some nice paragraphs to reflect upon as it relates to the unity of the two testaments and how I've talked about it tonight. So as we wrap up our program this evening, I want to close with a, a few more points as we reflect upon sacred scripture, how to read sacred scripture, how to interpret sacred scripture. This is all for naught. If we are not on bended knee, we must take up the disposition of the anawim of God, the poor in God. Literally translated the anawim bent over, on bended knee. If we are going to gain access into the mysteries of God that come to us from sacred scripture, we must first call upon the Holy Spirit in light of that great gift of faith and be mindful that it is only by calling upon the Holy Spirit that we will truly be able to understand that spiritual element of sacred scripture. So it demands that we really apply that hermeneutic of faith, that principle that is faith itself, that for everything that we have talked about up to this point, if we do not have faith, then for all intents and purposes, the Bible will just be a book. It will not be living, burning within us, as they said on the road to Emmaus. So let us call upon that great gift of faith. Remembering that faith, right, coming from that Hebrew word emunah, is just not belief in, into the unseen, some impersonal magnetic force, but belief in the God who is love. And that love that was championed on the cross is what he gives to us in the Holy Spirit. And so it is right that we respond faithfully, firmly in his light and his truth. Because that Old Testament vision of faith Emunah is the obedience that is faith, the obedience that springs from faith, the obedience that is one who personally adheres to the will of the Father. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.